good morning again. I want you to think about a, uh, I'll call it a truism, okay? Just a simple, simple idea. Knowing who you're talking to will transform that conversation. Knowing who you're talking to will transform that conversation. Now, some of you are aware of the fact that uh, Sarah and I were in Memphis this past week at the General Assembly, that is to say, our, the annual gathering of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. So we were down there with, and I was one of some 2,000-plus delegates, commissioners uh, there. And so that's, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people to try and keep track of. Uh, to, to say the least. So they have a lot of name tags that they print on your pretty little lanyard that you wear around your neck. And those name tags are really helpful. Really, really helpful. Um, not just to know the person that you're talking to that you don't know, that you've never met, but to help you in conversation with the person that you do know, that you have met, whose name you don't remember. And the reality is, for no few of us in that room, I'll just put it this way, the years and the mileage have been more or less kind. Hence, if not for their voice and that name tag, there were no few occasions in which I would never have recognized that dude until my eyes lit on that name tag. Knowing who you're talking to, right, is so important in terms of how you engage with that party. Knowing who you're talking to transforms the conversation. Prayer is a conversation. At least it's meant to be. Not just a monologue, a spouting off, spouting out, like a shopping list. Hey, Jesus, here's what I got. Prayer, rightly understood, biblically understood, is we ought to understand it as to be a conversation, a conversation with God. As Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, in prayer there's real communication possible, possible with our Creator. So here's the question. Do we know who we're talking to? Do we actually know who we're talking to? Because if we do, maybe that might transform the conversation. got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, this is a, a one-off. We're stepping out of our series in Judges, in case you were wondering. Uh, we, Lord willing, will get back into that next week, uh, picking up where we left off last week in thinking about Gideon and his story. But for this morning, it being Father's Day, I want to press in to kind of come at this from a, a Father's Day-related angle. God as our Father, and what does that mean in terms of our communication with Him, our relationship with Him, in particular regarding prayer? So, uh, these much of this will be familiar words to you as we move through this. This this section in the, in the Sermon on the Mount includes what we oftentimes refer to as the Lord's Prayer. We'll get to that uh, around around about verse nine, but I'm going to start back in verse five. So Matthew chapter six, starting in verse. Five. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. If you're trying to find that in your Bibles, first of the Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is Matthew chapter 6, roughly halfway or so in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Hear now God's word. 
And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, can we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you for thinking even of us, thinking even of us in the moment in which you first spoke these words to the crowds gathered there before you in what we, in the midst of what we now so fondly refer to as that Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for teaching us, your followers, then and now, what prayer is, what it is meant to be. Thank you for modeling it. Thank you for guiding us. Jesus, by your spirit, would you please move within our hearts now that you would press this instruction down deep. Would it be received uh, in, the, in the deep soil of our hearts? Plant this good, the good soil, the good seed of your word into the soil of our hearts this morning. Lord, your disciples time and again came to you. We know it. We know, we have it recorded. Lord, teach us to pray, and we are still asking. And we ask that you would be so merciful as to um, teach us now. We pray in your name. Amen. So prayer, think with me. Think about what we're talking about here. Prayer, a believer's communication with God. Prayer, uh, conversation with the true and living God, the creator of, of, of all things, the great I Am. Prayer is a, is a wondrous thing. Again, in Schaefer's words, a real communication can take place between the, the, the creature and the creator. A wondrous, fantastic, amazing, profound. There's also problems that come with it. There's problems. Um, that's why Jesus is teaching as he is. When you think of the context and some of what comes just before, when you get to what we call the Lord's Prayer, there in that section on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just profound, but there are problems that are worth addressing when it comes to the topic of prayer. Jesus, uh, here in, in this, the course of this sermon, is speaking of, of three different spiritual disciplines, exercises, expressions. Um, one would be almsgiving or giving to the poor. Another is prayer, and the other is fasting. And we're in this section here in the Sermon on the Mount having to do with, with prayer. And he makes clear, as he gives these warnings, we each 
one of the three, and gives some corrective teaching with each one of the three. When it comes to prayer, what he's saying is that um, prayer, rightly understood, is never to be about a hypocritical performance or a manipulative posturing on our part, but prayer, rightly understood, is to be from the heart. In fact, you could put it this way. Uh, The heart of prayer is prayer from the heart. The heart of prayer is prayer from the heart. Now, let me just say three quick things about what we oftentimes call the the Lord's Prayer in total before we kind of focus in on, on one particular thing. So first off, it's not really the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer given to the Lord, by the Lord, given by the Lord to his disciples. So really, it might be better called the disciples' prayer when you think about it. The Lord's prayer is more the source than anything else there. Another is is that it's not meant to be a liturgical form set in concrete that we can never deviate from. We know that because Jesus prays other ways. We have that recorded for us in the Gospels. And, of course, there are the Psalms and several other instances of prayer, obviously recorded all Old and New Testament, meant to be a model prayer for us to follow, a map, if you will, for for guidance in prayer. And the last thing I want to say is when you get to, again, what we oftentimes call the Lord's Prayer there in verse 9, the transition is, is worth noting. It's hard to see in the English, but in the Greek, there's a clear transition, a contrast that's being made here. Um, I know in the, in, the, in the ESV, it says pray then like this, but really in the Greek, it's more you then pray like this, with the emphasis being on the you. That is, they pray, the hypocrites and the pagans, they, pay, they pray like this, not so with you. You are to pray like this. This is how you, as my followers, are to pray with a heavy emphasis on that you, that, that contrast. Now, the introduction, the very beginning of the prayer, these first few words uh, in, in the English, these four words, uh, we dare not skip them. We dare not run past them too quickly, just kind of thinking it's a, um, a sign-on kind of like when we write a letter, you know, dear so-and-so, and you don't really pay attention to that. No, this is vital. The opening words of this prayer are absolutely vital that we would understand anything of the rest of it. Our Father in heaven, knowing who we're praying to absolutely transforms what we pray and how we pray it. Or if I can put it another way, Jesus clearly is calling us to pray He's clearly calling us to pray, but he's calling us to pray to our Heavenly Father. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? If we can just drill into that just for a few minutes together, I think what we'll see is this. Three things. You might want to pop that next slide on. Uh, We don't have the outline in the bulletin. That's on me. Uh, But I think we've got a slide that shows, yeah, the three points where I'm heading over the next few minutes. And if you just want a skeletal outline as to where we're going. Three things that you can clearly see just in the reality that Jesus in the introduction to this prayer and the address of this prayer, our Father in heaven, it tells us there's a corporate element to prayer. It tells us that prayer is powerful, and it tells us that prayer is personal. And these are so vital, so important that we grab onto because this is what Jesus wants us to know. 
Let's look at these things in, in turn. First, uh, prayer is, has a corporate element to it. That is to say, our Father in heaven. He doesn't say, my Father. He doesn't say, pray like this, my Father in heaven. Do you notice that? It's interesting. I think that's the way we oftentimes think that's what he's taught us to pray. My Father in heaven. That's not how he teaches us to pray. He teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven. Clearly, there's a corporate element to be understood here clearly from the start. If I can put it this way, there's, it's not meant to be strictly private. Our prayer lives are not meant to be strictly understood as being strictly private. Yes, the Lord is personally concerned with each and every one of us, each and every one of his children. Of course he is. He is individually, personally concerned for your burdens, your sorrows, your joys, the things that make your life heavy, the things that make your life light and, and happy in the deepest sense. Absolutely, absolutely. He's a concern with us as individuals, but he is not in, does not deal with us, does not love us, does not relate to us, does not engage with us like an indulgent, permissive parent spoiling us. Put it this way, it's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's not just about me and Jesus. It's about us, us and Jesus. There is a corporate element here to prayer. It's not just private. Clearly, Jesus has in mind in the opening salvo here that we would understand there's a familial component to prayer. When you are saved, when the Lord by his grace inflames your heart, helps you to understand your need of a Savior and who it is and how it is that you can be saved, it's not just that your relationship with God changes. It is that. He becomes Father, absolutely. But it's equally true that your relationship with every other Christian changes as well. You don't get a choice in the family you're born into. You don't get a choice in the family you're reborn into either. Okay? And I know there's a lot of strife regarding both. However, we have brought into a family we now have siblings, cross-cultural, cross-historical timeline as, as well, and globally. We have sisters and brothers in Christ because of this great work. So with that in mind, because we have these family ties therein, we ought to understand in prayer, there ought to be something expressed of our family concerns in Prayer, Because there's this shared life that we have together in Christ. That's why Paul says we are to weep with those who weep, and we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, because we are one. We are one body, one family, with one Father. And our prayer lives should reflect something of that, and we can see that because Jesus says, Our Father in heaven. Now, that is a, this, this corporate reality to the Christian life is integral, Old and New Testament. You cannot get away from it. However much we might try, and however much we might struggle with it as 21st century Westerners, which we do. We do. I, don't know, I, I think I've used this as an illustration before. I'm, I'm not... Positive, but, but if I may, if you've heard me say this before, then 
bear with me. Uh, in terms of the struggle of the, the corporate life, the corporate element to the Christian life, um, think of the Amish for a moment, okay? Let's learn from uh, the Amish community, if, if we can. For the last hundred years, and so many of us know this, the Amish have resisted technological innovations along the lines of uh, the television and the automobile, right? So uh, hence they don't have televisions, and hence you see them riding in buggies. Got it, okay. But what they have not resisted are technological, scientific, medical innovations with medicine. Now, that's interesting. That seems, at first glance, inconsistent, unless, unless maybe we don't understand what's going on there. Maybe we don't understand the purpose behind why they say no television and no, no cars, but yes to modern medicine. Well, Jameson Wetmore is an engineer and uh, social researcher, and he's done a lot of study on this, a lot of work on this. And he, he said in, a, in an interview a couple years ago, the reason the Amish rejected television is because it is a one-way conduit to bring another society into their living room. And they want to maintain that society as they have created it, and the automobile as well. As soon as you have a car, your ability to leave your local community becomes significantly easier. You no longer have to rely on your neighbor for eggs when you run out. You can literally take half an hour to run to the store, but in a horse and buggy, when you don't have your own chickens, that's a half-day process. I asked one Amish person why they didn't use automobiles. He simply smiled and turned to me and said, look what they did to your society. And I asked, what do you mean? Well, do you know your neighbor? Do you know the names of your neighbors? And at the time, I had to admit, I didn't. Jesus begins his model prayer as he's teaching us how to pray, our Father, communicating clearly there is a corporate element to prayer, to the Christian life, and therein to prayer. Our familial ties to one another means we should be having familial concerns for one another, which means therein that should be a huge part of how we pray. Yes, of course. Again, I said it earlier. I'm going to say it again. Yes, of course. He wants us to come with our particular personal individual needs. Absolutely. You can see that as you keep reading through the prayer. But not exclusively that. Absolutely that, but not exclusively that. We have, as a family, right, in Christ, shared burdens, shared obligations, not only our own, but also others. I'll just say it really quickly. Think with me. When you consider a, whatever, however you want to fill in the blank here, a cultural crisis that we are all facing, that pains you, that you are struggling with, do you think maybe there might be some people to your left and right feeling the same way? Pray for them, too and their own heart struggles with those things. Or perhaps some sort of calamity that comes upon us as a community. Of course, there are burdens that you as an individual, your household as an individual might be feeling, but what about those around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Should not our prayers be going for even creatively, imaginatively? Maybe you don't know the specifics, that's okay. Jesus, show me how to pray for my brother and sister in what they are struggling with, the burdens that they are carrying that may or may not be like my, my own. It's a corporate element to prayer. Jesus is calling us to pray, and he begins with our Father. Okay, keep going. Second point. Um, 
prayer is not only, there's not only a corporate element, clearly there's, prayer is powerful. Uh, clearly we see that in that Jesus says, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Now, now what does that mean? Now that's not about cosmology. That's not about geography. That's not about where God is, where God is but who God is. Okay? Uh, it's, this is not about a statement uh, 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 philosophically or scientifically about God's heavens. This is not about uh, the stars in the sky or the galaxies or the clouds or anything else up there, uh, but rather about God's throne, which is everywhere. Okay, it's not about where God is, but who God is. It's not about cosmology. I just got from General Assembly. I've got to use these big words. It's not about cosmology. It's about sovereignty. It's about his rule. It's about his reign. It's about the fact that he is the wise one, that he knows all things and he knows them well, that there's nothing beyond his gaze or outside of his grasp of understanding. Another big $10 word. He is omniscient. He is omniscient. He knows all things well. And you, I know, you think, I think when we come to him in prayer, we're telling him about something he doesn't know. Well, guess what? There's nothing he doesn't already know. We cannot inform God of anything. This speaks to his wisdom, his knowledge beyond our tracing out this God, this Father in heaven, but not just his knowledge, but his power. Here's another $10 word, his omnipotence. He is, he is all-powerful. He knows all things and does all things well. We cannot inform him of anything, nor can we oppose him in anything because of who he is, our Father in heaven. He is our creator creator of all things. I thought about that when I was walking my dog this morning, just looking at that dog, this four-legged little beastie. God made that. And then I started listening to the birds, and I started looking at the trees, and I started looking at the cars and the houses, and I thought, oh my word, he made creatures that could make that stuff. That plane flying over my head. He made creatures that could figure out aerodynamics. What a God. What a God. His wisdom and his power. He is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of all things. Our Father in heaven. He is the king, is the point. Our Father in heaven. He is the king. And we have his ear. We have his ear. Prayer is, has a corporate element to it. Prayer has a, it is powerful. As, as, as well. If I can put it this way, our prayers are not earthbound. Our prayers are not earthbound. They may feel, feel earthbound. That, that may be the lie that you've, you, you, you've bought into. But it's not true. Our prayers are not earthbound. They reach spiritual escape velocity. You know what escape velocity is? It's the thing that NASA engineers have to deal with when they want to get a rocket into Earth orbit to break the pull 
of Earth's gravitational force, they've got to get that thing up to a speed, at least briefly, of 25,000 miles per hour to break the pull of Earth's gravity so that that rocket is no longer Earth-bound. Do you hear me? Our prayers reach escape velocity and are never Earth-bound. We have the ear of the king of the universe who is the all-powerful, all-wise one calling you and me to talk with him, to listen to him, to be in communication and conversation and relationship with him. Our Father in heaven, what might that do to our prayer lives. Might it lend at least a hint of expectancy? Maybe. Christian, think with me. You already know a guy. (laughs) You already have the influencer of culture. You already have somebody with some pull. You already have somebody with some contacts who, who, who knows somebody because he's the somebody. You've already got that. We've already got that. We've got the one who holds the stars in their orbits at this very moment, who holds the the sphere on which we sit and stand at this existential moment, planet Earth, who's holding that in its orbit properly in the Milky Way, well, in the solar system, in this Milky Way galaxy, in this moment, who's putting the air in your lungs and the blood pumping through your veins, that God, that that God, the one who can turn the hearts of kings like a faucet, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, that God, that God calls us to pray, to come to him, and pray. So he may, and he often does, call you to be part of the answer to that prayer. He may call you to get engaged with whatever that thing is that's on your heart, that he's put on your heart, that he's put on your mind, that perhaps he's injecting you. But before you go any further with that thought, pray. Jesus says, our Father in heaven. He calls us to pray, and clearly, prayer, we are rightly to understand this, is powerful because of who we pray to. Because of who we pray to. There's one more here, and it is every bit as vital as the other two. There's not only a corporate element to prayer. Prayer is not not only powerful, but clearly there's a personal element here. Prayer is personal because we're praying to a person. That's what I mean by that. We're praying to a person, God himself. Jesus says, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Just by definition, that that automatically tells you there's a relational, personal component to this by definition, by him saying, by using that word, that word, our Father in heaven, meaning, for starters, God is not abstract. 
Now, you can learn a lot about God, but he's not a theory. He's not just a topic. He's not just a thing to study and to, and to know about, my fellow Presbyterians. I know that lands hard on us. He's one to know. He's one to know and can be known really and truly in Christ. He, he, he is not abstract. Now, I, 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 it pains me to say this. Star Wars is not enough. Pop culture lessons are great. But bear with me. When it comes to the force, he ain't gonna cut it. God is not an idea. He is not a theory. He is not a force. He is not just this thing. Yes, those movies, please, I'm not trashing. But, you know, it's not trashing. There's much to learn there with the heroism, right? And the wonder and the beauty of sacrifice and the reality of good and evil and, and the warnings regarding tem the temptation towards power and control. So much we would learn there and should as, with all the great myths. And I suppose you could say that is something of a great myth, a modern myth. But, 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 but it falls far short when it comes to understanding spirituality because the force borrows a whole lot more from Eastern mysticism than it does from biblical spirituality. God is not abstract. He can be known. He can be known. He is our, our Father. I want to go back to the text that was read earlier this morning from Psalm 103. Just read you two verses. Listen again to what, what the psalmist is saying here, verses 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. That is to say, he knows how we've been made. He knows us. He remembers that we are dust. You get the sense of intense relational knowledge here. He, he, he knows us. And he hears us. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows your introversion. He knows your extroversion. He knows the chinks in your armor. He knows the buttons that can get pushed. He knows your trauma. He knows your pain. He knows that where the healing has taken place and where it has yet. He knows your frailties. He knows your stubborn streaks. He knows your, the wayward tendencies in your life. There's relationship here. He knows you. He knows us. And there's this paternal compassion that is pouring out of him towards us, his children. That's what Psalm 103 is speaking of, and it's what Jesus is tapping into as he teaches us to pray. He knows us. He loves us. He guides us. He provides for us. He protects us as the heavenly Father. And what Jesus is saying here in, in Matthew and other areas in the Gospels as well, no doubt this is repeated numerous times in his teaching on prayer, was absolutely revolutionary. Now, on the one hand, yes, God was understood to be like a father. And you, obviously we see that in the Old Testament, that, that psalm we just read. God was understood to be like a father, but Jesus is the one who injects something new. 
and that is addressing him as father. Not just knowing him as being, you know, theoretically like a father, but actually relating to him, addressing to him, coming to him as father. Jesus did some, does something revolutionary here. The word in Aramaic, it's translated in the English, father, here, uh, is, is one that a small child would use towards that father figure, that male adult in their home. Father, loosely translated, daddy. That's the level of intimacy of this word in the Aramaic, Abba. Abba. Jesus is saying, this is how you ought to understand who you're praying to, your Abba, the child coming to your father. Our father in heaven, there's a personal aspect clearly here. Think about that. what does that do to our prayer lives. I read just this past week, um, King Charles. King Charles has recently hired a man uh, to wake him every morning. Now, actually, he is up far earlier than this, but he, the contract is such that he is contracted with this guy to come and play the bagpipes outside his window every morning at 9 a.m. to awaken him, even though he's already been up. Now, this is a thing. Apparently, it's, it's a thing among uh, British royalty. Now, that might be a little bit much for you and I. I'm not sure if I, that's how I'd want to be awakened, you know, by, by the bagpipes first thing in the morning. Uh, I've got to look it up on my iPhone. Um, but, again, having your own personal piper to wake you up first thing in the morning is a thing among the British monarchs. In fact, uh, Queen Elizabeth had that arrangement herself. And as I understand it, the gentleman who played the, the pipes at her funeral is the one that King Charles has contracted with to play to wake him up every morning. Now, why am I mentioning this, you're wondering? Well, um, this is a situation in which the king has given not just an invitation, but orders, instruction. I want you to come and disturb me at an appointed time. Like, he's said, I'm telling you to come and disturb me, wake me at this appointed time. But I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if there's ever a case in which someone could awaken the king on their own without any prearrangement like that. That would take some, what's the word, chutzpah, I think? That would take some, some bravery. That would take some craziness. That would take some intimacy, maybe, to do that. I mean, who comes to awaken the king on their own without being told to do so? Who, who would come with such boldness and assuming such privilege. Well, as Tim Keller was fond of saying, the only person who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. And we have that kind of access. You. You, Christian. You, follower of Jesus. You, child of God, have that kind of access before your heavenly Father to wake him at 3 a.m. with a glass of water. Do you know that? 
Do you know that? It's what your Lord wants you to know. It's how he's showing you how to pray right here in prayer 101. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, such is his kindness towards us. And his kindness towards you and I is the confidence we have in prayer. Do you see that? His kindness, that's not going anywhere, towards you and I is the confidence we have in prayer. It is nothing to do with how long or short your prayer is. It has nothing to do with how slick or polished or well thought out or articulated. It has nothing to do with any of, of that at, at all. It has to do simply with this, that he loves you and that you are forever his child and he is forever your father. That's it. That's it. There's a personal element to prayer that we really need to know. We really need to know this. We are, yes, called to pray. Of course we are. That's wonder in and of itself, but just add this onto that. Who are we called to pray to? Our Father in heaven. Now, as we're landing this plane, I want to do something a little different. It's Father's Day. So I want to speak to the fathers in the room specifically regarding the implications of some of what we've just dealt with in terms of learning how to pray. Now, everybody else is feel free to listen in. If you just think creatively, you know, you know, just cross out here and draw a line here and, and do a little editing of what I'm about to say that actually is applicable to everyone. But I do want to speak directly to the fathers in the room. First, pray with your children. Given everything that we've just been talking about in the last several minutes, pray with your children. They need your model. They need your example. They were given to you for this purpose, partly. Pray with your children. Pray for your children. Pray for your children. God hears the prayers of fathers for their children. You may wonder, why? Why does he need my prayer? Why would that matter? I'm so glad you asked. Blaise Pascal, brilliant mathematician, philosopher, theologian, put it this way. He spoke of the way that God has instituted prayer in order to give his creatures the dignity of causality. C.S. Lewis, along those very same lines, put it this way. It may be a mystery why he should allow us to cause real events at all, but it is no odder that he should allow us to cause them by praying than by any other method. 
look, think with me. We have uh, farmers that God uses to provide food. We have doctors that God uses to bring healing. We have counselors that God uses to provide wisdom. We have soldiers, policemen, that God uses to protect us. It's no different than with prayer, except maybe a little more mysterious and a little more shocking that he would involve us in that way. The dignity of causality. Pascal's. So pray. Pray with your children. Pray for your children. And if I may just put a question to you, what are you praying now? What are you praying for your children? Are you, please, let's, may we not stop at their being spared temporal fleeting failure. May we not stop at only for their temporal fleeting successes. Let's not stop and settle for that. Let's pray for their hearts, whatever age they may be, for the beginning and the enriching and the deepening of a relationship with Jesus. Now that may come through. That may well come through fleeting temporal successes in this life, but you gotta know, what else does it come through? Fleeting temporal failure. What are you praying for? What are you most focused on when you're praying for your children, brothers? Let's pray with them. Let's pray for them. What are we praying for them? And and lastly, how are we praying? Again, the corporate element, the powerful element, the personal element. Ought we not to be praying with expectancy, not demands, but with a sense of God acts, God works, God sees, God knows. He loves these children, however old they may be, more than we ever will. Praying with a sense of faithful boldness on their behalf. Brothers, how are we praying for our children? Jesus, all of us, now back to all of us, calls us to pray. He calls us to pray. And he calls us to pray to our heavenly Father. I think we should pray now. Let's do that. Jesus, would you please teach us to pray? We stand right there with Peter and James and John and all the rest. They've heard you pray. They're watching. They're learning. They're curious, mystified. Jesus, teach us to pray. We are still asking. We still struggle with understanding, just with head knowledge when it comes to What is this wondrous, amazing thing, the believer's communication with God? What is this? Teach us to pray. We struggle with our understanding, but Lord, we also confess we struggle with grasping, with believing what we understand, with acting accordingly. Lord, we're still asking, and thank you, thank you that you are still answering. You're still answering. Thank you that even this morning we have the assurance that you are working in our midst by your spirit, through your word, to answer that question, that cry. 
to not only inform us, but to transform us, to make us increasingly people, not just of the book, but of prayer. Help us, please, regarding what it means to pray to our Heavenly Father to know this is not just about us, it is about the family. Our Father in Heaven to know we have the ear of the King. Our Father in Heaven knowing that we are known, knowing that we are loved. We pray all this in your name, Jesus.